Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome to episode 108 of District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to yesterday's fantastic interview my exclusive with south dakota governor christy gnome that has been received very well and i greatly appreciate all of your feedback on that i'm going to keep in line with this week's theme kind of a girl power theme and introduce you guys to our next guest for today samantha petter of the council to advance hunting and shooting sports and sam is the director of operations for the council and here's a little bit on her biography she obviously does that role for the Council to Advance Hunting and Shooting Sports, and she previously served as the Manager of Outreach and Diversity for the National Shooting Sports Foundation and the Hunting Outreach Specialist for the Pennsylvania Game Commission. Samantha has spent her career focusing on improving contemporary recruitment and retention and reactivation, our three practices, through each of these organizations. She holds a Bachelor of Science degree from Penn State, a Master of Natural Resources from Utah State University, and just finished a Master of Business Administration from Georgia Southern University. Samantha is an avid hunter and angler and a novice trapper. More and more of her time in field is being dedicated to pursuing waterfall. However, she still annually reserves a week to spend time with family and friends pursuing white-tailed deer during Pennsylvania's rifle season. I think you're going to like what Samantha has to say about her work. If you're not already familiar with R3 and what that is, she'll help enlighten you and get you up to speed. And this was so much fun. And she's such a wealth of knowledge on this. And I think you're going to enjoy what she has to say and take an interest with what the council does. Here is my conversation with Sam Petter of the Council to Advance Hunting and Shooting Sports. Enjoy. Sam Petter, it is great to speak with you on District of Conservation. Thanks for coming on for having me I'm excited to chat with you yeah it's good to catch up it's been a while I think we've talked a little here and there I haven't seen you since Poma last year uh, but I hope it well as well on your end yeah it is uh, I wish we could have seen each other over the summer um, that would meant COVID wasn't here but unfortunately that's not the case so at least we get to chat yes zoom is wonderful but why don't you tell my listeners how you got roped into the outdoor industry and your work with the council to advance hunting and shooting sports Sure. So I work for the council. It's been about four and a half, five years now. I'm director of operations, uh, which means basically just one of the staff um, trying to corral our our plans and and look forward and figure out what needs to be done for our core mission, which is recruiting, retaining, and reactivating participants in the outdoors. Um, Unlike a lot of our partner organizations, uh, other nonprofit conservation organizations, we have a small staff. We have a staff of about three. We just hired somebody. We'll be announcing that person here shortly. Um, but this is a, a critical kind of awareness of the council because we don't actually do programs to teach new people how to hunt. Instead, we act as a facilitator of advancing the way we do those programs. So all of our state partners, state fish and wildlife agency partners, will do programming. They'll do licensing, marketing um, to get new people outdoors and keep them active. 
And then the council works with all the staff to see what's the trends. Is there ideas that can be shared across state lines and even at the regional and national level too to improve our methods so that we can actually address the prior to COVID decline in participation in hunting and changing rates of participation in target shooting. So we're, I wouldn't call us a think tank, I'd call us a partner, a facilitation partner um, for state fish and wildlife agencies, federal entities, and then also um, our major conservation nonprofits and even industry. Um, our board, while we have three staff, we have 35 board members making up all those different groups I just listed. So. We're kind of the meeting point for a lot of partners too and looking at the future of the outdoors, the people who participate and what we need to tackle. How has the outlook for hunting and shooting sports looked like? Because I keep reading trends. I think a lot of us are talking at great length about how actually hunting has kind of seen a renewal uh, despite COVID happening. We see more people going outdoors. Is that kind of uh, the council's outlook, uh, how, has there been a short-term gain in hunting participation? And do you expect license sales to increase even this season? That's absolutely on our minds and we're trying to figure out what's happening. Um, in the first few months of COVID, some lessons we learned from our angling friends is that sales dropped initially because of shutdowns in certain states and each state was different. Um, the non-resident side of licenses was greatly impacted, which, you know, just how we manage and license pricing and everything is a greater hit to some agencies' budgets and ability to do management on the ground. Um, but on the angling side, uh, some of our partners have documented an increase in license sales nationally with different rates, you know, occurring at the state level. Um, we're actually setting up a project right now with one of our research partners to understand the short-term monthly trends in hunting. Um, Good news is that we've made progress in our ability to manage data on the state's part. Um, they're digitizing their license trends and they're starting to share across borders with a great project that many of our partners have been facilitating, including the American Sport Fishing Association. So we'll have real-time data probably in the next two years. Um, COVID has shined that light on the validity of it by even just tracking those numbers based on COVID cases daily. So we'll have better numbers handy in the future. But right now, short term, we're trying to establish that metric so we can truly see is, you know, hunting up, um, what, what type of hunting is up, resident, non-resident, and then come early 2020, um, we'll know better of more trends. Is it the type of people who picked it up versus, you know, are they brand new? Are they emerging markets, perhaps? Or are these just our, our lapsed hunters coming back into the fold because, hey, life pretty much stopped and they had more time to go hunting. So our other partners are working on that aspect of it as well. So we will have a good pulse come December and early January and what has happened with the monthly trends. And then moving into 2021, we'll know even more what's going on and what that means for our strategy. Because, you know, the narrative prior to this was put participations down. Mm -hmm. um, we knew that based on the national survey data. And now it's like participation is there. And so we're going to focus on retention after that and say, who's here and how do we keep them active? That's our focus moving forward. Yeah, I know retention is a huge component to your work and everyone's work. And I feel like everyone has started to hear about R3, which is a wonderful thing. I see a lot of that in our state wildlife agency, the Virginia Department of Wildlife Resources, which has just been renamed to that. And Absolutely. 
I think a lot of state agencies have uh, started to come on board. You see a lot more modernization of apps, uh, websites. Some states are still a little behind, which I wish Maryland, uh, West Virginia, and a few others had uh, easily accessible phone apps <laughs> that were mobile friendly. Uh, but I would say most, most states are pretty on board with creating easy apps to download free so you can have your licenses. You can have all the information readily available at your fingertips. You can have... Uh, different uh, seasons, uh, creel limits, uh, harvest limits in place. Uh, and, and do you kind of see that more state wildlife agencies are understanding to reach broader, newer audiences, especially in this time that they have to modernize, they have to reach people on social media? Are they, are they leaning on social media to do so, you'd say? Yeah, each case, each state is a case by case. But like in New York, for instance, we're hearing record participation numbers in their hunter ed class because they went online. And they waive some of the requirements for age. And um, we're hearing that rumored trend as well across other states. And our friends at the International Hunter Education Association are trying to figure that, those numbers out. But like staunchly different numbers, like maybe twice the number that took the course the year before in New York. And um, some of our other more forward states like Tennessee were able to get um, social distancing uh, content in their social media to promote fishing and participation, like in March and April, they were on top of it and were able to get that information out. And one of the benefits, um, I think, of having a community that, you know, the council works with, you have a national community of um, employees that work on these, these strategies, is that they were communicating with each other and learning alongside it. So, you know, COVID has changed so many things for us, but it's also revolutionized a lot of aspects of what we do on the the professional side of getting more people outdoors because now apps are that the case had to be made first at times why do we need an app now we're five steps forward in that conversation in saying what app do we use what developer do we use so that happened in the course of six months for many states and that's a huge gain to help you know connect with new audiences all the efforts about the um the map act going on right now and, and increasing awareness of use of public land too is a huge aspect of this and I know many states are looking at that as we head into the hunting seasons because we heard um, rumors back when, on the angling side during fishing season that um, public access points were overwhelmed and so our agency partners are already thinking about that now for hunting season how do we increase what method of communication can we help hunters figure out where to go and distribute across the landscape um, both for safety but for you know participation experience as well. And they're, they're thinking about that before the season's upon us. So just that response time in that um, strategy is, is all evolved very quickly in the last couple months. If we were there prior to COVID, the COVID just made it easier. And I am, I'm excited with the future as our colleagues kind of say, we did this, what else can we do now? Right. And how has the industry responded to the passage of, let's say, the Great American Outdoors Act? I know that was probably the biggest milestone in the last 50 years, the largest public lands bill of its kind. Do you think that's going to give hunting and fishing and shooting sports a boost as well? I know that that's something everyone across the board, uh, from the hook and bullet crowd to the hiking and biking crowd, everyone seems to be celebrating that victory. But how will that impact uh, participation and retention, you think, if it will? 
Yeah, it's huge. Um, you know, Great American Outdoor Act had multiple pieces to it, but within it was the LWCF funding to and permanently authorizing that. And a lot of the conversations now amongst our, our policy partners is how can we prioritize the areas that need it in the state level to get that funding on the ground to improve that access? We've heard many different numbers of the need. And now it's where do we get the money in the first year to make that access better? So I know in states like Pennsylvania, um, they're judiciously going through. There was a call for federal input on the Allegheny National Forest to figure out what areas could the money uh, be put to and, and input on that and how do we do that. And there was a public comment period already. So I think that money in that process coming through is going to make the experience better for the participants. And I know, uh, especially in our Western states, outdoor use has increased. So even just in real time, the need for maintenance and caretaking of our resources has increased probably tenfold because of just people being outdoors. And so it's going to be so valuable, not just this year, but moving forward, because now we have an increased need to make sure we, we care for the resources out there. And that gives us more tools in our toolbox to do that. Right. And with respect to caring about kind of your surroundings, one of the campaigns that was pushed uh, by different stakeholders in the outdoor industry was the Responsible Recreation Campaign. Can you speak to that and and how that has encouraged people to safely and responsibly recreate in the outdoors? It's a really creative one because it's an alliteration, which is always very catchy when you're doing hashtag campaigns and having campaigns on social media. Uh, But what has the council's uh, response to such a campaign been? It's a huge effort. I, many of our partners have taken the lead and um, it's very much appreciated because you think about it, um, some of the governors initially just closed down all like, federal lands in some states and that restricted access to what people really need right now, which is time outdoors to de-stress and the health aspect of outdoor recreation has never been more recognized and valued right now. And so our partners leading that initiative to say, educate not just, you know, lawmakers and policymakers, but our constituents, our participants, and say, we can play a role in responsible recreation by social distancing and limit the chances and the perception out there that um, we need to close down access. It's a very proactive approach to it. And I'm excited that it's been going on. We tried to share it amongst partners and um, we'll be highlighting that campaign coming up here with our state coordinators as we head into the fall seasons too. Awesome. Can you share a little bit about the different audiences and target demographics the council has been reaching out to or which has been most receptive to learning about hunting and shooting sports? Because I know a big push is to expand our reach and uh, I'd say impact to different people, to different uh, interests who are interested in going to the outdoors. You see a lot of different pushes. Uh, but what what demographic in the United States has you say has been most receptive? Uh, is it more women? Is it more Hispanic, Native American, Black American interests that are expressing interests to go uh, hunting and partake in shooting sports? What have you guys seen in terms of uh, who is most receptive and who is uh, taking greater interest into these activities in addition to the traditional demographic? Sure. Um, and so traditional meaning um, Caucasian, male, and maybe older? Yeah, older. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, we constantly research who's participating because what we've learned is that there's trends. Um, we know women, uh, we've known for a while now that the women market is increasing. 
But we also learned, you know, with research by partners like NSSF, the National Shooting Sports Foundation, that women might be increasing uh, in the recruitment category, but the retention category, they were failing because just for many reasons, they were lapsing out. So we shifted our focus, you know, from not just, you know, first time women learn to hunt programs, but extended experiences to retain women and make sure that they don't lapse out maybe after just one year. So there's each category of participants has brought some nuance to it. Um, I would say across the board, because of COVID right now, we aren't sure of who's the growing interest in COVID times. Um, but recent research conducted by Southwick Associates and um, the Wildlife Management Institute did a deep dive into the concept of mentoring. And they did a national survey. The results are like literally forthcoming. We just hosted a session on it during the virtual R3 forum, which I can give you a link to if you'd like. Um, but the concept of mentoring, which is what we traditionally know as somebody teaching somebody else how to hunt. That's what we say when mentoring or target you. Um, they, they surveyed mentored, mentors, potential mentors and avid mentors, and then potential mentees, people who might learn how to hunt from another person. And some of those demographics are showing that some groups that are traditionally underrepresented, like um, Black Americans or Hispanics, are interested in learning how to do it. Um, some of the numbers, if you look at the national survey data, that's one pulse we have. It's the National Survey of Hunting, Fishing, and Wildlife Associated Recreation. And um, in 2016, because it's done every five years, uh, the numbers of participants, it was like 95, 96% Caucasian, but then... Um, Hispanics was 3%, people of Hispanic origin, and then uh, African-American and Asian-American, they actually didn't have a percent on it because there's uh, not enough of a sample size to report it. And that's a, that's an issue, right? We, we need to know and understand who's out there and how do we serve them better. So by understanding people's preferences in mentoring, you know, Southwick and Dumpy's research can help us better connect with those people. And it talked about their experiences they're seeking. One of the big Conclusions is that the actual term mentor is a detraction in and of itself. People, you know, carry that word in a certain meaning, um, but they just want to coach an instructor instead, perhaps, than a mentor. So from learning who's out there and who has an interest, we can cater what kind of programs we offer, cater what kind of instructors we recruit, how we talk about the programs, um, and other efforts. So we're looking forward to diving deeper into that research, as well as the COVID numbers, because it'll help us to understand what opportunities we have moving forward to, you know, diversify and increase the inclusion rate of hunters in the future. Very fascinating. Has there been a particular type of hunting that uh, participants have started to incline to more so? Uh, what have you guys seen or, or anecdotally, what do you think uh, people are taking an interest in like upland bird hunting, waterfowl, big game. Is there any metrics on that yet? Or is it all across the board? People are interested in all of them. We are trying to figure that out. We know from some of our records and some of the data out there that um, small game has seen a decline in participation. Uh, we know that some of the partners in the waterfowl side of it are looking at waterfowl participation rates and piloting this year, some different licensing structures that maybe could help with participation rates there. And so we're trying to figure out those statistics better um, by recognizing that small game participation has gone down. We've started uh, having partners focus on that more. And instead of doing a learn to hunt deer program, they might do a learn to hunt squirrel program. So if you've seen a trend in learn to hunt squirrels or squirrel recipes on social media, that's probably why. 
there's a hashtag that we came up with just as a joke, but I mean, it shows a, a opportunity though. It's called small game, small gains. And basically um, with small game hunting, you can go out and harvest maybe six squirrels and have multiple experiences, right? Whereas deer hunting, some states you only allowed to harvest one. So there's a lot of benefit as we look forward and getting more people outdoors by the plentifulness and the enjoyment of the experience um, for small game hunting. And then just multiple exposures, just the huge capacity that we could do to teach more people how to hunt. Very cool. Yeah, because it seems like a lot of people are discovering hunting for the sustenance aspect. Uh, They want to know where their game meat is or their meat is sourced and how it's sourced. Uh, We see a lot of these. You guys talk at length about the field to fork program and similar other programs and the squirrel one you mentioned. Uh, Is that also something you see as a motivating factor? I think it probably depends on the region, individual interest, but I know that's the local vor sustenance type uh, component to to wanting to learn how to hunt has, I think, been a large driving factor with people. Is that kind of what you guys are seeing initially in your your findings that are coming out too? Yeah, I I would say that the local board, the term in itself, right, um, has evolved even over the last decade. The field of fork has capitalized on that movement for sure. Um, people have always hunted for food uh, as well as enjoyment and social connections is usually our top um, motivators based on just general uh, human dimensions research into this. But as of late, I think a spotlight's been shined on it because we haven't faced uh, bare shelves in a very long time. It's probably one of the first uh, experiences I've had, even in my my short tenure of life, right? So for me, I was, during COVID, I was thankful I had meat. I was a little bit less, um, you know, at risk of not being able to find food. And for many, I think that either hunters were, were more grateful for that aspect of it and maybe more motivated now to do that, or people start looking and say, how can I control this situation for myself? I think that renaissance of thought um, is going to motivate more people in the future. To what extent, I don't know. We're trying to figure that out. COVID's presented so many challenges, but there is this connection to food that people want. And I think any way we look at it, looking forward, um, highlighting the food aspect more presents even more opportunity. We just did a panel um, on Friday afternoon and one of the panelists shared that, you know, he wishes that hunting could be more about the food aspect of it and a national kind of push for that because food is a common commonality for many different types of people. And if you think about it, swapping recipes, sharing game, those are our intrinsic values that sportsmen carry. So highlighting that aspect and even just pushing it further and, and talking about recipes and talking about cultural approaches to food, I think really play out well for us as we look to 21 and beyond. Indeed. Is there anything else you'd like to add about what the council is doing, uh, what people should be aware of, how they can connect with you, learn more about different initiatives? Uh, Is there anything else you want to speak to? Yeah, absolutely. And that is um, the one thing that we will always promote. And that's teaching someone how to hunt or target you. Your, your coverage has talked about that for ever since you began, I believe, uh, since you worked with Cyrus. And um, that message couldn't be any more important than this year. Even if numbers are up in participation, um, we still have our due diligence to do to keep people participating after COVID passes. And so if you have hunting clubs and you have an extra seat, fill that seat. If you have a person who's looking at it, 
we have some downtime now, even as COVID remains into the fall months, maybe there's a chance that you can teach them on their first experience and then just maintain that relationship into 21 beyond. So if anyone's listening and has that opportunity, we highly encourage people to just help others out and learn how to hunt. Awesome. Where are links to connect with the council, to connect with you? How could people reach out to you if they're interested to get involved and learn more about the council's work or perhaps take any information you guys have extrapolated and uh, disseminated to their supporters and followers? That's awesome. So if they're a hunter and want to connect with us, um, they can follow us on social media. Our hashtag or our handle, I'm sorry, is at thanks, the number four hunting. Thanks for hunting. Um, our website is cahss.org. And if they're in the professional space of volunteer, um, wanting to do more efforts to get more people outdoors, they can join us on the National R3 community. And I'll share those links so you can connect it with your recording. Yes, I will definitely include those in the links uh, to the show notes for sure. Perfect. Sam, this has been such a pleasure. You gave us a lot of information to take away from the conversation. You're an invaluable voice. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing what's trending, what's happening. And I think people will take away a lot of invaluable information going into their hunting season, or perhaps learn to uh, take on hunting if they haven't already. So I really appreciate you coming on and I hope we get to see each other soon sometime in the future. You know, I really appreciate you just covering the topic and all, everything you're doing uh, as we head into elections on, on conservation as well. I think you're giving a vital voice and I really look forward to seeing what else you do. Thank you, Sam. That's a very high compliment. I appreciate it. And uh, thank you for coming on. Let me know what you think of today's podcast episode. Be sure to comb through past episodes to download them, listen, give your feedback and help us gain some more reviews on the podcast, especially if you're listening on Apple. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat or a guest announcement or catch up on past guests and cool things that I have been doing in the field or with my guests in the field or whatnot. I am going to try tomorrow. I have no promises, but I'm going to try at least for tomorrow, maybe next week to assess where this Supreme Court justice nominee Amy Coney Barrett stands on conservation issues and actually believe it or not with her originalist textualist framing she kind of falls in line I think with true conservation and she has said she would be a deciding vote in favor of second amendment rights we'll read that statement from the National Shooting Sports Foundation she has commented and ruled on some stuff in energy and much more so I'm going to assess kind of her record and kind of make an argument as to why she actually is pretty good for conservationists on the bench. So I'll try my best to put that out tomorrow, if not tomorrow, next week, but you may see an episode for me on this next week or this week. But yeah, stay tuned regardless. And like I said, engage with the podcast on social media, encourage your friends to find us, subscribe, listen, and the more downloads we get, the, the greater the wilderness chart ranks that we can climb. Thank you guys so much for listening. I am so thrilled by the many new listeners who have discovered us these last few weeks. It has been a really record-breaking last few weeks. We've had a lot of downloads, a lot of listens. So I'm very grateful. I'm so grateful for all of you hearing this podcast. We're not really corporate in any sense. It's me just podcasting from my home with an Audio-Technica microphone and a little bit of help with GarageBand, but I really appreciate you considering the podcast and the content that I put out here. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.